Good morning. How's everybody doing? That was very convincing. Fabulous. All right. I'll I'll take that one. Today we are finishing up Romans chapter 15. Romans has how many chapters? 16. We're in the home stretch. We're almost there. We have been going verse by verse through the book of Romans for over a year now. And we're almost done. We'll be done by the end of January. That's exciting. That's cool. Very cool. Big thumbs up from the back. So Romans is written by who? Paul. Paul introduces himself at the top of this letter. How? He says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He's set apart for the gospel of God. He's an apostle. What else do we know about the apostle Paul? How did he start? Was he always a servant of Christ Jesus? What you got? He was a persecutor of the church. He was a persecutor of Christians and a murderer, wasn't he? He was not always a servant of Jesus. What else do we know about him? He was an intellectual. He had studied a lot. He was more than an intellectual. He was an ideologue. He was dangerous. He studied under a person named Gamaliel, who was the premier teacher of his time. It'd be like, uh, for us, uh, an Ivy League education, something like that. He was multilingual. He was a very, very smart guy, and he was a persecutor of the church. And then one day, he was on the way to a church or to a city called Damascus, and on the road there, he met Jesus, and Jesus changed everything. How? Jesus took this violent, murderous ideologue, and he turned him into a servant. Paul went from a persecutor of the church to a pastor of the church. And he became a servant of Jesus. That's how he introduces himself. And what kind of servant did he become? He was the kind of servant who had one great ambition in life. And we talked about it last week in chapter 15, verse 20. He says this, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul became the kind of servant who walked the entire Mediterranean. You've got like Europe of, I don't know, I wish I would have put a map up. You got Europe and you got Italy and you've got the whole Mediterranean all the way down to Israel over here. He walked all that space preaching the gospel, often walking up to 20 miles a day. He was forward thinking. He was aggressive. He was strategic. He had vision, both short term and long term. And he planted somewhere, we think, between 14 and 20 churches throughout the Mediterranean all the way up into Europe. He was strategic in how he did it, too. He wasn't just flying by the seat of his pants. He didn't just happen to plant churches in places he happened to come to. He was deliberate. He chose particular kinds of cities to plant churches in, key cities that had a lot of things in common when you look at them across the board. They were cities that were high in population, high in commerce, high in foot traffic, high in regional influence. He often chose port cities, cities where there was a lot of traffic from across the world. In those churches he planted, he placed high-level leaders, people that we read about in other parts of the New Testament, like Timothy and Titus. And those guys were evangelists and elders who, in turn, planted churches throughout the regions they had influence on. So those churches multiplied and planted other churches that multiplied, so that within just a few short generations of Paul's life, those 14 to 20 churches had spread the gospel throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire, all the way up into Europe, deep into Europe. Paul became the world's first great missionary church planner, and he was the founder of an entire church planning movement that was self 
replicating. His ministry is chronicled in the book of Acts. You can go there. You can read about it yourself. It wouldn't surprise me if over the next couple of years we went there and studied it together as a church. So Paul was converted from an intellectual to a man of action, from an ideologue who tore things down to a servant of Jesus who built and laid foundations as a master builder, which is how he describes himself. And these foundations are still standing today. And on top of all that, because of his love and care for the churches he planted, he ended up writing at least 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Maybe 14, so half of the New Testament. And he set the example for us himself and how he preached and how he taught and how he shepherded the people that he evangelized and how he wrote in defense of the flock and in defense of God's truth. He set the example too through his suffering. His influence and his productivity and his work fulfilling the mission that God gave him came at a cost, came at a price, as all faithful ministry does in one form or another. This is how he writes about it, comparing himself to the false apostles of his time. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is Paul. And none of this slowed him down in his work. No threat of suffering or death stood in the way of what God had called him to do. And that's why we have the book of Romans in the first place. Today we'll we'll see something that I've been saying all along, which is that this book is not just some abstract theological treatise. It's actually a missionary support letter. Y'all gotten missionary support letters before? They don't tend to be like the book of Romans, right? Paul is writing this letter to explain the gospel and encourage this church and to build up this church in Rome because he has something that he wants. He wants to bless this church spiritually so that they will in turn bless him materially so that he can go on to fulfill his mission. He wants their help. So he needs them to see that he's legit And he needs to do that in a way that makes them feel loved and encouraged and challenged and motivated and inspired to receive him when he comes to them and to send him on to where he wants to go next. He's got big plans. And that's where we pick up in today's passage, Romans 15. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Okay, so if you remember last week, He just told them he does not like to go where churches already exist. He likes to be on the frontier. He likes to be on the front lines. There's already a church at Rome, okay? But he's been out on the front lines. That's where he's been. And although he's wanted and longed to visit the saints at Rome, he hasn't had the time. He's had other work to do. He's had other priorities, especially given his gifts and his calling. It just wasn't that much of a priority until now. And here's why. Continuing on in verse 22. But now... Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, 
I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he finally has a reason to go to Rome. What's the reason? He needs a place to stop and gather himself and gather resources because he's headed on to Europe. He's headed on to Spain. Why? Because nobody's been there yet and they need the gospel too. So at this point, he's more or less worked his way from Israel up around the Mediterranean multiple times. He's planted churches in all kinds of key cities. And now it's time to go farther. It's time to go to a new frontier. Rome is an outpost, a stronghold that can do that, that can send him on his way. So this is what missions looks like for the world's greatest missionary. He traveled to these key cities, these places of commerce and travel, these port cities. They'd be like, uh, they'd be the place in any region that you would call the big city. Okay, so to translate this sort of into our terms, Evansville is a city with a population of how much? Does anybody know? 125,000, that's the urban population within the city limits. The metro population is 350, 350,000. Does anybody know how many people in the tri-state region Evansville serves? 1.5 million. 1.5 million people throughout southwestern Indiana, eastern Illinois, and northern Kentucky. Okay? That's 1.5 million people that look to Evansville as its center of business, commerce, medicine, all of that sort of thing. We're on a river, and we're at a junction between two interstates. Right, 69, when it's done, will run Canada to Mexico right through Evansville. Okay, and 64, east to west, is huge, right? I was talking to a pastor from Illinois not long ago who wants me to come and speak at a conference at his church. And he, I think they're about two hours away. Is that right? It's your cousin. Hour and a half away. But they have all their babies here in Evansville. Right? So they drive an hour and a half, like they have to anticipate labor and get here in time to have their babies here. That's what Evansville is to a lot of people just around the region. Okay? We're a region of serious industry. We have manufacturing. We have medicine. We have two Division I universities. Okay? So we have stability and strength. Even in times of economic hardship and chaos, we're a place that's relatively safe to be. Low cost of living. And that's why Evansville grows and continues to grow. In my judgment, Evansville would be exactly the kind of place that Paul would plant a church. And it'd look something like this. He'd move in. He'd start a new church. He'd live here from anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of years. He'd be building the church. He'd be training leaders. And then he'd go and move on. He'd go down the river or up 69 or down 69 or across 64 to St. Louis or to Indianapolis or to Louisville or Nashville or someplace like that. And what he would do is he would depend on us, the church here that he planted to grow and develop leaders and to begin to think strategically about evangelizing this whole region. He'd install a leader here in his place who would think from the beginning about, okay, we have to become a stronghold here and we have to think about Northern Kentucky and Eastern Illinois and then the rest of Southern Indiana. 
Okay, we can see this sort of thing in action even in the book of Romans. So if you flipped over to Romans 16, verse 1, you would read this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea. Who planted the church at Centrea? We have no idea. We don't know. It's not recorded anywhere. What we do know, though, is that Centrea is a small town about 8 to 10 miles outside of a big city called, does anybody know? Corinth. And we know who planted the church at Corinth. That was Paul. And so what we think is that Corinth planted the church at Centrea because Corinth would have seen itself as being responsible for all of the surrounding region. And as a city of commerce, so uh, Phoebe, for example, she was a patron, we'll read also in Romans, of all kinds of missions. Okay, so maybe she had business, maybe she was wealthy and she had business in Corinth and she came to faith just by being in Corinth. Or maybe Corinth sent people to Centrea. It doesn't matter. One way or another, that church at Corinth is probably responsible for the church at Centrea that Phoebe now serves. Okay? So Paul would plant a church, he would train leaders, or sometimes he'd bring along with him a leader who, could, he, who he could leave behind. And the idea would be that Corinth or Evansville would grow and spread. And soon there would be gatherings on the west side and on the east side and Newburgh on the north side and downtown. And then Henderson and New, or, uh, Mount Vernon and Vincennes and Princeton, Jasper, Owensboro, Mount Carmel. Just give it enough time. Okay? And as those churches would grow and multiply, their ability to provide coverage would grow. And they could spread deeper into rural areas and be supported. And then maybe God would raise somebody else up in that network of churches who was like Paul in his gifting, who could go somewhere else and do that kind of thing, who maybe would go to the frontier, who could start over. Maybe Paul would come back through to strengthen the churches and he'd be like, you know, that guy Dylan, he's got a lot of potential and he's young, but he's not doing much. I'm going to take him with me. And then he'd take him. And he'd go to Nashville and he'd plant a church and then he'd leave Dylan behind. Something like that. That's what it would look like. Okay, so within a couple of generations, that was his plan, that was his strategy, and it worked. Within a couple of generations, the influence of the church was spreading throughout the Mediterranean and into Europe. And it was affecting throughout the Roman Empire a massive cultural shift. So that within 300 years, you have your first... Christian emperor. And by 400 AD, Emperor Theodosius, which means gift of God, is making Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, banning worship in the pagan temples and tearing them down across the entire empire. It's huge. This is how it starts. 120 people in a room in Jerusalem, some leave, Paul goes throughout the Mediterranean planting churches that plant churches. And within 350 years of that upper room, you have your first Christian emperor and you have pagan worship being banned throughout the Roman Empire. It's amazing. So what about us? We're not on the frontier, right? We're trying to revitalize things and hold the line and build a church that with can withstand the evil of the day that we live in. 
But we do hope to follow Paul's example. I don't think of myself as being the kind of person like Paul who goes city to city planting churches. But it is my hope and prayer that God would make us into a flagship church, a church that Jesus would use to plant and equip multiple churches throughout southern Indiana and northern Kentucky and eastern Illinois, that God would use us to raise men up and send men out. That's our plan. It's modeled on what Paul's doing here, what we see him doing in the New Testament. Plans are good. Ambitious plans are good. Paul was probably in his 60s at this point, and you heard all the things that he had been through. He was walking, like I said before, something like 20 miles a day, and here he is near the end of his life, and what's he planning to do? What would you be planning to do if that was your life? Retire? He's planning to go to Spain. How many of you in your 60s, 50s, I'm about to turn 40. (laughs) The idea of going to another country at this point and learning a new language and being part of a different culture, it's insane. That's crazy. That's who he is. It's a lot. He's ambitious for the kingdom of God. He has a call on his life, and it's real. Don't let anybody tell you that making ambitious and strategic plans to build God's kingdom is somehow bad. There's a world of people who think it's spiritual to just sort of like be passive about this sort of thing and fly by the seat of their pants. I just preach the gospel and let God do the work. I don't think carefully about the growth of my church, not in depth, not in conversions, not in planning churches. I just sort of let the Bible speak and things happen. That's good enough for me. It sounds nice. It sounds very spiritual. It's profoundly unbiblical. It's not what we see in the Bible at all. It's opposed to Jesus' command to go. It's the opposite of what we see modeled for us by the Apostle Paul. There's no room for that kind of passivity among the servants of God. As pastors, our goal is to love and care for our flocks and to see God's kingdom grow and to expand and to see the great commission that Jesus himself gave to us fulfilled in the territory that he's made us responsible for. That means we think carefully about how to help people grow in godliness. We strategize how to disciple our people, how we can train our children and raise them up and raise up the generation after them to love and follow Jesus. It means that we strategize how we're to love and disciple the people who aren't here yet and how we can raise up leaders and how we can multiply our efforts so that in time we see transformation. What father sits back and says, well, I just sort of love my kids and I make sure they have food and clothes and, you know, they'll be fine. That's a bad father. A good father is thinking about a lot more than that. How do I prepare my kids for the world? How do I help my sons grow into godly mature men and my daughters grow into godly mature women? How do I train them and prepare them? How do I educate them? What do I expose them to and what do I protect them from? What are good career fields for them to enter into? How do I set them up for success? How do I provide them with more opportunities? Who are they going to marry? Are there godly families with kids their age who we can be friends with to encourage godly, strong marriages? We work and we strategize and we plan to help our kids. We help them work and strategize and plan because they have to do it themselves. We can't do it for them. Peter turned 16 in March. Since he turned 15, he's gotten a job. He's invested some of his earnings. 
He's apprenticed himself to a custom knife maker. Tomorrow he's finishing his first custom knife, supposedly, that the guy who's teaching him says will be worth 125 bucks by the time he's done. He'll have two days worth of effort and $20 worth of materials into it. That's cool, right? Some of that he's done on his own. Some of that he's needed help with, right? Setting the roadmap. Who knows what it'll turn into? Maybe his investments will pay off. Maybe they won't. He'll learn something. Maybe his knife making will become a hobby. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll become a hobby that makes some money. Maybe it'll become a lucrative hobby. Who knows? He'll learn something. He'll grow. In any case, he's trying to make plans. We're trying to help him. Because that's what good parents do, right? They don't sit back passively and say, oh yeah, well I just sort of like love my kids and let them go. That's the attitude that a lot of churches have about the mission of God. And it's wrong. Plans are good. Do things always go according to plan? No, of course not. They don't. Even with Paul, things didn't always go according to plan. Most church historians think Paul didn't make it to Spain. We might be able to explain why just by continuing to read his plans here in Romans 15. Okay? Let's continue. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay? So I want to come to you, but first I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Okay, so at the time of this letter, he's headed to Jerusalem with a collection from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. Okay? And we know something about how that trip went from the book of Acts. In Acts 20, what we read is that Paul has been collecting an offering for the saints at Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been through tough times. Persecution has hit the church in Jerusalem hard. So he's bringing a collection from the Gentiles. He's got two reasons for doing that. One, he just wants to go to the church of Jerusalem and say, hey, Look at all of what God has done through you by sending me. Look at all of these Gentiles that love God now. All these pagan worshipers of demons who now worship the one true God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that cool? He wants to go bring that report back to them. And then on the other hand, he wants the church of Jerusalem to really feel the gratitude of those churches. And he wants them to be blessed by them. So that's what the collection is for. It's not easy to be a blessing from afar, right? Not in a way that's felt. You can pray for people that are far away, and that is a real blessing, but it's not one that they can easily connect to you, especially if, you know, you're not able to send them an email or a text and say, I've been praying for you, right? You can write them a letter like Romans. This is Paul's strategy, right? That's a blessing. If you're the kind of person that can do that, maybe that's the kind of thing that you could do. But one of the easiest and simplest ways to be a blessing from afar is what? It's just money. It's just money. Paul knew that. Paul wasn't shy about it. He wasn't above it. He took a collection and an offering and he brought it to Jerusalem. On his way there, a prophet comes to Paul and says, listen, if you go through with this, you're going to be bound up, you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and things aren't going to go well. And Paul's response is, you know what? It's the right thing to do. It's the plan. I don't care. I've been through this before. If it's time to die, it's time to die. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm sticking to the plan. So he sticks to the plan, he goes to Jerusalem, and guess what? 
He's arrested and bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And the final seven chapters of the book of Acts are just Paul bouncing around from one civil leader to the next until he appeals his way all the way to Rome. So he does end up in Rome. But when he gets there, he's under house arrest for two years. And that's where the book of Acts ends. In church history, the consensus is that's where he dies. Nero's emperor, Paul's there under house arrest. He finally gets to stand before the emperor who hates God and hates Christians, and he's beheaded. That's the end. Doesn't make it to Spain. So what? Was it a bad plan? Is the lesson, don't make plans because you don't know what tomorrow brings? It's not the lesson. I think the lesson's the opposite. You keep your eye on the mission. You make plans. You make big plans. You make big plans to never stop doing the work of building God's kingdom. And then you follow through on them as far as you can. And you keep your eye on the mission and you stay flexible. Sometimes you have to pivot. Sometimes you can't. Paul had planned to come to Rome. He had been prevented. Already thwarted plans, right? No big deal. He knew his mission. He made his circumstances serve the mission. Paul planned to go to Spain by way of Rome. He made it to Rome, except he was under house arrest. Kept his eye on the mission. He spent two years preaching to the guards and to anybody who would listen. He made his circumstances fit the mission. He was in his 60s. He never took his eye off the ball. He never let go of the mission. He was committed to fulfilling his ministry to the very end. And I'm not saying that you can't retire I'm not saying life doesn't have its phases, that it doesn't shift, that it doesn't look different in different seasons. Paul handed off every church he planted from what we can tell to younger men, okay? But if you have the hard-earned wisdom that comes from the experience of life, wisdom that cost or cost dearly or was dearly paid for, you do have an obligation to pass on what you've learned. Even as the young and inexperienced have an opportunity and an obligation to learn from you. We all have to forge our own paths. We all have to build our own lives. We all have to make our own mistakes. But fools never learn from their own mistakes. Naive people never learn from other people's mistakes. The wise learn from everything they possibly can and everyone they possibly can, including their enemies. So make plans. Make plans for your life, where you want to be in five years, where you want to be in 10 or 20, and ask what that has to do with the kingdom of God. Lots of people will plan their financial futures, but they'll do it without reference to God or the kingdom of God, without reference to what matters or what will last. So they'll come to the end of their lives with all their treasure stored in barns and look for fun ways to spend it after the past the point of being able to enjoy it. And listen, you should be financially responsible and use your youth to build wealth and leave a legacy and an inheritance to your kids. The Bible says that it is wicked and foolish not to leave your children an inheritance. And it's not wrong to enjoy the fruit of your hard work. All those things are true. But you must remember that the kingdom of God is about more than money. You need to be thinking about your investment in the kingdom of heaven. Have you stored up treasure in heaven or on earth? Because everything here can be destroyed. 
and taken away really quickly. Treasure in heaven is eternal. How are you planning to invest in and build the kingdom of God now in five years and 10 years and 20 years? It's worth thinking about and talking about and praying together about as a family. Let's keep reading. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Okay, so here's what he's doing. He's coming to his ask in his support letter. He's saying, look, this is the gospel I preach. You've heard it for 12, 13 chapters now. He didn't have chapter breaks. It's a big, long letter, okay? Here's my mission. My special calling is to take this good news that I just delivered to you, and you can see it all right here, to the frontier where people have never heard. And my plan is to come, to spend some time with you, to enjoy your company. And my hope is that you will then help me go on to Spain from there. It's going to take some time, though. Before that can happen, I have to go to Jerusalem. I've already taken up a collection for the saints there. Speaking of, just saying, it's good for those who have benefited spiritually from somebody to return a material blessing. These Gentile churches have been blessed spiritually and they've been strengthened by the church of Jerusalem, which sent me, so it's right for them to send money back to Jerusalem. I hope that I've been a blessing to you spiritually and that when I come to you, you'll receive me and send me on to Spain because there's more work to be done. Because it's good for those who have been blessed spiritually to be of service to others with their material blessings. It's one of the simplest and first things we can do when we become believers. Y'all remember Zacchaeus? What do we know about Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. He was also a wealthy wee little man. Jesus came to Zacchaeus' house and blessed Zacchaeus spiritually. And what was Zacchaeus' immediate response to God's blessing? He gave half of his possessions to the poor. He returned back what he had defrauded from anybody. This is just like immediate. Jesus comes to his house and he's like, I'm going to give half of all of my money to the poor. I'm going to, like, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to return it. I think he says 10 times, like tenfold. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus taught and spoke about money a lot. And why was that? Was it because he was greedy? No, it was because for many of us, the love of money has a hold on our hearts. Either because of idolatry, so he says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Okay, so there's idolatry. False worship of money. There's also the reality that money is a great source of anxiety and pressure for us. It has a hold on our hearts through fear and insecurity. So he talks about it from that angle too. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus talks about money a lot. And Paul says, if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service in material blessings. Okay. So the question is for you, how about you? Where do you fit? What do you bring to the table? How blessed are you spiritually? You ought to be generous with how God has blessed you spiritually. You ought to share your spiritual blessings with others. How blessed are you materially? You ought to be generous and share with others your material blessings. We're not just bodies or souls, we're both. We're spiritual and material beings and we have spiritual gifts and material gifts. And we need to do our best to be generous with both. In proportion to how God's gifted us. But Jake, I'm poor. Okay, do what you can. But Jake, I'm a new Christian and I'm spiritually weak. What do I do? Jesus is strong. Do what you can. Just tell people what he's done for you. You'll be surprised what Jesus can work with. One day, a crowd of 5,000 people followed Jesus out into the wilderness to hear him teach. And they're out there a really long time. And there was no food. And they went looking for food, and all they came up with were five loaves of bread and two fish. And in the hands of Jesus, those five loaves and two fish fed all 5,000 people. If Jesus can feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, he can use whatever you bring to the table. If he can use a rebellious, murderous Christian killer to plant some 15 to 20 churches and write half the New Testament and bless the world for thousands of years, he can use what you bring to the table. And here's the point. You are responsible for the gifts that God has given you to be a blessing to others. You owe it to them. And you should be so grateful to God and so pleased to have an opportunity to bless as you have been blessed that you're happy to do it. Here's another truth. Some of us like to think we'll sit and we'll wait until we have the strength and the stability and the maturity that we feel like we need in order to start giving ourselves to other people. We'll sit tight and consume and take until we get financially strong enough or spiritually strong enough to then be a blessing to other people. And that's not how it works. That's not how we get strong and mature. We get strong and mature by giving and serving and by taking the little we've been given and using it. Jesus talks about this a lot too. Do you remember the parable of the talents? A master gives three servants an equal number of 
talents to invest. One goes and invests and it grows. Another goes and invests and it grows. And another says, ah, I don't know. I want to bury it. The master comes back and this guy says, look, I've, I forget what it is, tripled or tenfold or something like that. Taken what you've given me and I've, I've made it multiply. And Jesus says, well done. You've been faithful with small things. I'll give you more. And the next guy says, well, I haven't done as well as him, but I do have a return. And he says, well done. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll give you more. And the other guy says, look, here's what's yours. And Jesus says, you wicked and foolish slave. And he takes that and he gives it to the guys who took the risks and made the investment. And this is how it works. We take the little things God gives us and we invest and we give and we serve. And as we do that and are faithful, he adds and he adds and he adds. And we grow in our ability to serve others. And that's not some prosperity thing where if you give enough money, God will 10 times your wealth. There are no promises like that. There are only promises that it's more blessed to give than to receive. If we're faithful and we seek first his kingdom, he'll take care of us. And that if we're faithful in small things, he'll give us more to work with. Okay, so now, we want this church to be healthy and strong. Spiritually, materially, all together. And we're in a pretty good spot. But if our church is going to grow to be a blessing to others, we have to continue to grow. We're getting close to three years old, we're young, and we're growing. And we've covered a lot of ground biblically. We have to continue to deepen the roots of this church, spiritually. We need to be strong, steadfast, immovable, deep, rich, full of wisdom, and full of leaders. We've also done well materially. We're in a good spot financially. We really are. But we're still depending on being supported by outside churches and people. What we need to do is grow so that we're able to support ourselves and others. We need to get to the place where we're the blessing to the people out there. So we can turn to some of those people who have been investing in us and say, we got this. But we're doing a cool new thing over here. Let's together partner to make this happen, this church plan over here. We're going to support this church up there. That's what we want to get to. This means we have to grow in our ability to make disciples for Jesus. We must always be growing in our ability to make disciples for Jesus. Because that's the mission, that's the job. Go make disciples of all nations. We are an outpost that needs to become, in time, a stronghold that needs its roots down deep so that its branches can spread. In this community and in this region, and in due time, who knows how far? For that to happen, we need to be all in. We need to be on board. Things can happen fast. 2024, it's presidential election year. When was the last one? It was 2020. Things changed fast. Taught us how fast things can change on us. We need to be focused on our mission to make disciples for Jesus here in Evansville. Light on our feet, ready to pivot, ready to move as things change. And we need to get deep and strong so that we can be a refuge and a help and a blessing to more Christians and more churches as times grow increasingly unstable. That's our hope and prayer.
that this year would be a year of depth and growth. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So Paul's coming to Rome. That's the plan. He's got his spiritual blessings in hand. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm coming with spiritual blessings. I'm hoping that you'll provide me with material blessings so I can keep on my mission. But here's the truth. All of the writing, all of the preaching, all of the planning, all of the provisioning are meaningless without the power of God. So what do we do? We take all of our gifts, our money, our time, our resources, our teaching, our preaching, our counseling, our big plans, and we have to commend them to God. Because at the end of the day, if it's not of God, who cares? What are we even doing? We need his blessing. We need his power. We need him to work. We need him to use our gifts because they're nothing unless they're in his hands. In his hands, who knows what they can be? But they have to be in his hands. So Paul ends this way. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. By themselves, five loaves of bread and two fish are five loaves of bread and two fish. In the hands of Jesus, they're a feast for thousands. All our words are just words. In the hands of the Holy Spirit, they give life to the dead. All our plans are just plans. In the hands of our Father in heaven, they're tools for conquering demonic strongholds. So we need to give, but give prayerfully, asking God to bless our giving. We need to serve, but serve prayerfully, asking God to bless our serving. We need to preach and teach and love and share the love of God with our neighbors and do it prayerfully, asking God to work. We need to make big plans, ambitious plans. Plans like, I'm going to go to Spain. I'm not going to go to Spain. We need to make big plans and pray and ask God to give us wisdom as we plan and ask him to bless the plans and perfect the plans as we work the plans. Because all our giving and all our serving and all our preaching and all our teaching and all our loving and all our planning and all our strategizing is nothing unless God blesses it with his power. And if God blesses it with his power, what else is going to happen? We're going to attract attention. We're going to attract the attention of God's enemies. And so like Paul, we need to understand that as God works, we'll have enemies who come to oppose our work. We need to pray that God would deliver us from our enemies. Even enemies among those who ought to be our friends, which is something we'll talk more about in the next couple of weeks as we finish up Romans. But for now, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wisdom and the example of the Apostle Paul. Pray that you would make us wise and faithful to make plans to build your kingdom here. I pray that you would bless those plans and that you would be with us, that your hand would be upon us, that we would see those who don't know you come to know you, 
and those that do come to be strengthened and deepened in their commitment to walking in your ways and obeying your words. Pray that you would raise up leaders from among us, that you would give us strong families and strong homes who are an example to all. Pray that you would lead us and guide us as we seek to grow deep and strong this year. In Jesus' name, amen.